Turn with me again to Jonah chapter 1. I'll read from 1 to 10. We're going to cover 7 to 10, but might as well give some background, right? It's been a couple weeks. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. (coughs) And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, as Philip said, the green banners look especially nice today. Some of you may be aware that today is Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, in George's mind, Super Bowl Sunday is always a holiday because that's when we eat buffalo chicken dip. This is how we define holidays in our house. So that's what we do most years. We eat buffalo chicken dip, we watch a smutty halftime show, and some of the ads are sometimes funny, and we root against whichever team we like the least, right? And of course, this year is different, because you may have also heard that the Eagles are playing this evening. That means that the holiday is no longer just about buffalo chicken dip, for me, anyway. Can't speak for Georgia. Why is that? It's because I'm a Philly sports guy. It's in my blood. It's part of my identity. And because it's in my blood, I'm taking some of the kids to South Philadelphia tonight to watch uh, because that's where I feel like I need to be. Meanwhile, Georgia will be at home eating buffalo chicken dip by herself. (laughs) If any of you want to join her, maybe she'll make enough. Uh, Today is a good day to identify as an Eagles fan, and plenty of people will. It's not too late to join the bandwagon. That's okay. Um... And this is especially so if you're living in Philadelphia, right? But not everyone is so fortunate. I, I read a story this week. There is a, apparently one bar in Philadelphia that, I, that is a Chiefs bar. They root for the Chiefs at this bar. I don't know. I guess the owners must be Kansas City natives or something. So they have Chiefs banners all over the place, outside and in. And uh, they're the one bar in the city that is not eagled up, right? And the reason this reached the news was because due to harassment, this bar has now canceled their Super Bowl party and it is now closed for the day. (laughs) That's Philly hospitality for you. Now that's not right, and I'm not saying that I'm proud of that fact, but I'm not surprised either. 
because admitting to being a Chiefs fan in Philly today is not the smart political move to make. It's like painting a target on your back. No good can come of it. But it's hard to hide something that's part of your identity, isn't it? It's hard to hide who you are for very long, and eventually people are going to sniff you out anyway. I mean, they can close that bar, but if you're a Chiefs fan and you're hiding out in Philadelphia today, and you're the only guy not wearing Eagles green, and you're showing insufficient enthusiasm, right, that's suspicious behavior. You'll be smelled out. And the target's only going to grow if the Eagles are losing. Because you have to figure, this bar didn't close because they're afraid the Chiefs might lose. The bigger threat is that they might win and somebody's going to burn something down, right? So uh, they're the only bar within 100 miles that's going to be closed. So it could be dangerous to identify as a Chiefs fan in Philly today. And I thought to myself, you know, that's almost as dangerous as Jonah identifying as a servant of Yahweh in our scene today. You like that transition? I thought that was pretty clever. (laughs) But seriously, if Chiefs fans have a reason to lay low in Philly today, certainly Jonah has his reason to keep his head down on the SS Tarshish, right? Why? Because he caused the problem, and the storm has his name on it. You know, if the Eagles lose today, that's not the fault of the Chiefs fans, but Jonah really had created the problem, right? So he has every reason to hide his identity. And that's what he's been doing. Uh, In in the previous passages, we found Jonah sleeping in the bottom of the ship, dead to the world, dying in his rebellion. And uh, it took a pagan sea captain to wake him up and tell him to pray. Like, basically, I had to go down there and be like, you idiot, how can you even sleep through this? You know, take it from us experts. I've seen a lot of things on the sea. This is a good time to panic. And you can imagine Jonah waking up and looking around, and he's groggy, and he sees the empty storage hold because all the cargo is gone. And he stumbles up the steps to the deck, and, and the seas are, are, are all tor- tearing everything up. The rigging's all ripped up, and there's waves the size of mountains, and there's thunder and lightning. There's water everywhere. Grown men are crying and praying, and Jonah's trying to look inconspicuous. But it's hard to hide your identity. And running from God may be a natural reaction to our own sinfulness, but Jonah is about to get found out. And as so often happens, not only does your sin find you out, as it says in Numbers 32, uh, but usually others will find out about it too. So what happens? It says, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Well, I don't know how many of you have ever seen the movie Willow. I've probably used it in illustrations before, but one of my, it's one of my favorites from childhood. But, you know, he, he reluctantly saves this baby out of the river. And then these wild wolves start attacking the village, right? Uh, because the evil queen sent them to attack the village. And he knows he needs to report that he discovered this baby and that, it probably, you know, it's, that that's probably part of the problem. <clears throat> so he, he goes to the village council and he gets to the meeting and he's hiding the baby and, you know, wrapped up here. And everyone's talking about this wolf attack. And, and one of my favorite lines, and I don't know who says it, to somebody over here, like, who's to blame, some old woman shouts, you know, and at which point Willow quietly turns around and tries to discreetly leave the meeting, right? Um, he hadn't done anything wrong, but again, in, in our story here, Jonah has. And, and part of what's striking is that God is happy to use worldly pagan superstition to corner Jonah. And it's such a foreign concept for us because we live in a post-enlightenment West. And even in the church, we think like secular rationalists a lot of the time. And we think that this way of thinking is beneath us, right? 
Uh, but these sailors are a product of their time and culture, and they are what we would consider to be sort of superstitious people. Uh, first off, we see that they assume that this storm was caused by someone. The storm is not a, a merely natural phenomenon, but a divine punishment. Someone must be at fault. Who's to blame? And, and again, a superstitious idea to our modern mindset. But then they cast lots, because they instinctively trust in chance to explain things. This is kind of like one step above astrology in a way. Like, I don't know how many of us like, are familiar with lots. It's not really fully fleshed out in Scripture, but they show up a lot in the Bible. Uh, I'm not really sure exactly what they look like, but it's, it's akin to rolling the dice or flipping a coin or drawing straws or going eeny, meeny, miny, right? And, and the Bible is okay with using lots to make certain decisions. Uh, if the decision is not a moral question, it can be a good way of trusting God and putting the decision in his hands. Uh, Georgia is always fond of telling me to flip a coin when I'm indecisive about things. This happens a lot. <laughs> and I hate when she says that because to me that feels so arbitrary and usually I automatically rebel and I want to do the opposite of whatever the coin told me to do because I don't want the coin running my life, right? I'm too rational for that. But the Bible endorses that very method in certain instances where there are multiple good options, right? However, it's not for everything. For instance, you're not going to flip a coin to decide whether I should sin or not in a certain circumstance, right? Because God gave you his word and his spirit and wisdom. And if that doesn't narrow things down enough, then you can roll the dice, right? If flipping a coin helps you decide between pasta and pizza tonight, that's fine. But you wouldn't typically trust a bunch of pagan sailors to pick the guilty party in this scene, right? By flipping a coin. Like, how did they even get to the right answer? It's kind of like Monty Python logic, that scene where, uh, in the Holy Grail where they, what's it, they say, well, we burn witches at the stake because they're made of wood, and wood floats in water. What also floats? Ducks. Uh, if she weighs the same as a duck, then she's guilty. She's a witch. And it's like, well, that, that's ridiculous. And it's like, but it, maybe she does practice witchcraft. I, maybe, I don't know. But the point is, is that like, you've arrived at this conclusion in such a convoluted way. Like, how can we trust that? But who makes the lots fall on Jonah? God, right. So God uses pagan gambling, essentially, to shine the light of truth on Jonah and to embarrass him. He does something similar when he enables a witch to bring Samuel's <laughs> spirit back so that he can condemn Saul. But God is also sovereign over pagan dice. And you can imagine Jonah watching and cringing with each toss of the lots. You know, he's figuring, surely someone else is going to get the blame here. Like, my odds are good. There's a lot of sailors on this ship. I'm just one guy. So it has to be like, what, like 20 or 30 to 1 odds, right? And you imagine all the sailors being eliminated one by one until Jonah's left standing, right? But as God says, I mean, even in his word, Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God is sovereign over the random stuff, even at sea and even among pagans. And I love how they word it here. Why do they cast lots? That we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. The sailors are not subtle about what they're looking for. We will put the blame for everything squarely on the shoulders of whoever the lots point us to. Now, if Jonah were a better man, 
he could have stepped in at this point and said, hey, fellas, no need for that. This, this might possibly be m my fault. But no, he hangs back. He waits and watches the game and watches the results while the storm is raging, hoping all the time that it falls on someone else. And when you think of it that way, Jonah just seems to get worse and worse as every verse unfolds here, doesn't he? Thinking and acting like a good post-enlightenment rationalist. He's not superstitious. There's no way these lots are going to fall to me. And he is still more afraid in that verse of being found out than he is of dying here at sea. He would rather die than face his own sin. Again, Jonah is not a great role model. And one thing that jumps out in these verses is that it, these pagan sailors get something right. And this might feel like a sidebar, but it's something we need to think about. And it's something that jumps off of the page in these verses. And I'm not sure we even had a, a category for this in our rational brains. But your sin affects the people around you, even when they don't know anything about it. Your sin hurts people. Not only that, it actually endangers people. There is no such thing, ultimately, as private sin. I think all of us are very good at compartmentalizing our lives. Uh, we think of many of our sins, especially the worst ones, as being sort of private problems, our personal struggles. We'll talk about uh, things we need to deal with quietly over here, privately. Uh, the problem with that way of thinking is that we're all in the same boat, and if you are indulging in sin, that affects the people around you. The effects might be imperceptible to you or even to them, and we may not even know the connection between everything until, you know, not until the other side of glory, right? But one day, all things are going to be laid out at the judgment, and the secret things will be revealed. And that's a scary thought for most of us, I wager. But this passage teaches another unconnected thought there is that it, because of that, even unbelievers have a vested interest in your walk with Christ. When you are walking with Christ and obeying his calling, the world is better off. The world doesn't even understand why. But the world is a healthier, safer place when the saints are behaving like saints. And that should affect the way, I think, that we think about the culture around us. Because, yes, we are indeed living in a, in a dark and decadent time. But I believe that if judgment hits America, the church bears significant blame. Because what the heck have we done that the culture has become this way? I feel like we can't blame secularism. I think that's the result and not the cause. If we think that the, that the church is declining in the West, I think that can be attributed largely to the failure of the church to be the church and to maintain fidelity to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another way of putting that is that we've lost our identity. The saints being the saints means remembering who we are and confessing it. And sometimes that means confessing our sin. Now, confessing your sin doesn't always result in positive reactions, does it? 
Uh, not everything ends sweetly like an episode of Full House. Honey, thanks for admitting you broke the vase. You're still my little girl. And then everybody goes, oh, you know. That works in 90s sitcoms, but uh, usually confessing your sin turns the heat up. Especially if the harm caused by your sin is still ongoing. It's one thing to forgive someone for something that they did 50 years ago. People will make deathbed confessions. That's fairly common. And what can you say to that? Like, there's nothing I can do to change or fix anything at this point. There's no use getting angry. They're dying anyway. But if you have to admit a sin that you are currently engaged in, and it's causing great pain, great danger in the here and now, most people are not going to be quite as gracious. And yet confession is what the Bible constantly calls us to. Now, there are two ways that we use that word. Uh, There's confession as in confession of sin. Uh, We confess our sins to God in prayer so that he can forgive us. That's 1 John 1.19. We are also called to confess our sins to one another in the church. James 5.16 talks about that. Uh, And this is to provide accountability and encouragement. It is part of living as a family and as a community of saints. But we also use confession in the sense of stating what we believe, as in confessing our faith. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Romans 10.9. We confess the gospel, 2 Corinthians 9.13. And this is the sort of confession that the book of Hebrews says that we should hold on to. So you got that now. Confession means either admitting sin or proclaiming your faith, right? Jonah does both in this passage. And we're seeing kind of the first signs of repentance in Jonah. And it doesn't come easy. It's ugly and it's embarrassing. But Jonah can't run anymore. The sailors start shaking him down. The lots fall to him. And and then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And you can boil all of that down. All of those questions can be summarized as, who are you? They want to know his identity. Like a Chiefs fan walking down Broad Street in South Philly. What's your deal? And you wouldn't think it's a great time to start preaching and telling, you know, talking about your God. And yet that's what Jonah does. Suddenly he finds the words that he should have said a long time ago. Verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah confesses his faith. And it must have felt awkward because right now these sailors look a heck of a lot more pious than he does. They actually are trusting their false gods to give them answers in the lots and it succeeded. And now they are calling Jonah out on the carpet for his sin and Jonah isn't coming from a position of strength, is he? He's not speaking as someone with the moral high ground. But in spite of the awkwardness, Jonah finally confesses who he is, that I am a Hebrew, I'm a servant of Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, and he also confesses who God is. The great creator who made not just Israel, but the whole world, including the sea, were being tossed around him right now. And he suddenly remembers his Genesis 1, that God made everything, I can't hide. And if all you had to go on was verse 9... You would give Jonah high marks at this point, right? Alas, everything up until now has been a big flop for Jonah. And even within this confession, there is something strange. They ask him what he does for a living. What's your occupation? And he doesn't actually say, I serve the Lord. 
which would be kind of a laughable thing at this point, right? What does he say? He says, I fear the Lord. Now that's the correct answer on paper, but I'm thinking that his fear of the Lord has not been a healthy fear. A healthy fear shows reverence and awe, but at the same time, it's exciting. I'm afraid of roller coasters, but I ride them because of the thrill of it. Not all of them. I'm selective. But when I do ride them, it's for the thrill. I have a natural fear of pretty women, but that's what made pursuing Georgia so much fun, right? And I did it once, and it's like, that was enough of a thrill. I'm done. That is a very different fear than the fear of, say, death. There's not a dread. And in practice, Jonah's fear of God is more like fear of an enemy, an adversary. The fear of the Lord is not meant to be like that. The fear we are supposed to have is not the same fear that his enemies should have. And fear is infectious for good or ill. If my kids can sense that I'm afraid of something, that fear will spread to them. But if I fear the Lord in a healthy way, that also sets a tone for my children. I can reinforce either a healthy or an unhealthy fear of the Lord in those around me. And I don't suspect I have the greatest record on that front, but Jonah has been setting a uniquely horrible example up to this point. So when he says he fears the Lord, it has a ripple effect and it spreads throughout the ship. But what really takes the cake is what you read in verse 10, right? Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So we realize now that Jonah is not only confessing his faith in verse 9, he's also finally confessing his sin because Jonah had already told these guys he was running from God. An astonishing fact. That sounds pretty incriminating and pretty stupid. I don't know what it looked like at the time. I, I kind of assume that these sailors would have naturally asked why a landlubber like Jonah had decided to sail with them all the way to Tarshish. And maybe he answered them straight and they just took it as a joke. <laughs> I'm running away from Yahweh. <laughs> LOL, good one, dude. I got my own gods I'm running from here. Pass the rum around, you know. I don't know. I don't know how that went down. It was all a great joke maybe until Yahweh showed up and threatened to kill everybody. And now it's kind of like, dude, what have you done? You must have really ticked this God off. You really poked the bear, and he might be bigger than we thought. Jonah is realizing and admitting in front of everyone who he is and who God is. He is confessing that his God made the sea and the storm and even Tarshish, and when he says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, you better believe he fears the Lord right now. And maybe this is the first dose of healthy fear that we've seen. Because what's amazing is that the sailors respond with some of that same fear that Jonah is feeling. They no longer fear the storm per se. The fear has shifted now to the God who sent it. Jonah's not very impressive here, but God is increasingly impressive, is he not? They are coming to know true fear of the Lord through Jonah's weak 
pathetic confession. In spite of Jonah, these pagan sailors are, for the first time, actually fearing something real. You don't fear things that you don't believe in. So this pathetic, reluctant confession actually kind of works. And this is in spite of the fact that Jonah is essentially a walking violation of the third commandment. The third commandment is often misunderstood. People think it's about swearing or using God's name improperly, and that is wrong, but it's not the main point. The command doesn't say, don't use the name of the Lord your God in vain. It says not to take his name in vain. In other words, don't claim his name falsely. Don't call yourself a Christian unless you are one. And don't live in such a way that denies your confession. You have to walk the walk. Don't be a hypocrite. And God is completely okay with using unbelievers to expose your hypocrisy. Of course, we've all run from God at one time or another. I've said it before. We all have a Jonah streak in us. But even at your worst and weakest moments, don't hesitate to confess him. Because the one advantage to being at your weakest is that only God could possibly still use you. When we're caught in sin and running from God, our confession can seem weak. It is weak. And we feel fake when we're doing it. And we more than suspect that the people around us will see us as frauds and think that it's pathetic. But beloved, the strength of our confession is not in ourselves. Because true confession of faith and true confession of sin is not about us. Confession is about the God of heaven. That's where it starts. It points to his power, the power to create, the power to control the storms, even the power to forgive sins through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The believer who has been running from God can't fix the problem by recreating his identity. You fix the problem, so to speak, by remembering your identity if you're in Christ. Remember who God is and remember who you are. And just as there's ultimately no such thing as private sin, there's ultimately no such thing as private faith. It's not just you and God hanging out. Private faith makes no sense. And Jonah's learning that. He's finally coming to an end of himself, and that's why we finally get this moment of clarity. He's cornered, he can't hide his identity anymore, and it's funny, it all happens because a bunch of pagans cornered him and demanded answers. It is a funny thing that the world expects consistency out of God's people. That may sound backward or unfair, but God often uses the world to judge and shake up the saints. And if we respond, not in anger, but by remembering our identity, God can work with that. And we'll see more how God does this with Jonah next week. But, you know, last week we heard a lot about identity we were blessed to have the Dortzbox join us, longtime missionaries. We've been supporting them for nearly 40 years. We, we took a little break from Jonah to hear a little bit about modern missions, right? And, and thankfully, you know, listening to them, I thought to myself, some missionaries show a little more zeal than Jonah. That's kind of nice. And um, Carl and Debbie have had an incredible career. They're still doing great work. But the central theme of their lifetime and ministry that I took from it was, was this idea of identity that Carl was talking about, who we are in Christ And that new identity in Christ is what ties the saints together all over the world. And Carl rightly pointed out, you know, we live in a confused age, don't we? Where where identity is this 
ever-present question mark now. People are eagerly seeking an identity, and they're looking in all the wrong places. So they seek it in sex, they seek it in their gender, race, politics, their age group, nationalities, clans, tribes, and gangs. Like, everybody wants an identity, right? But as Christians, we have a better answer. We have an unshakable identity. Because our identity is not ultimately anchored in us, in our feelings, our nationality, our race, our language, our background. Our identity is anchored in Christ. The answer to who you are does not begin with you at all. If you're truly a Christian, who you are begins and ends with Christ, and in the end, you can't hide that. Your sin will find you out. God will hunt you down. Your status as his child will be exposed. And it might be scary or even painful. And it might put a target on your back. But that's because God doesn't let his children get away from him in the end. And in the end, that's very good news. The gospel can be seen by the fact that God is not yet finished with Jonah. His identity is not lost. The most reluctant prophet in the world, the worst, just made his confession this far into the story. And the fear of the Lord starts spreading. It's a simple application that if you've never confessed Jesus as Lord, today's a good day to start. But even if you have confessed him as Lord, keep confessing. That's not something we're ever done doing. Confession is an everyday activity for God's people. You remember who God is. You remember who you are. You remember Christ Jesus, the God-man who put his name on you and gave you a new identity in him, and he will never let you get away. Then you confess that truth. You proclaim it in prayer back to God. You proclaim it to yourself every morning. Proclaim it to an unbelieving world around you. Confess your sins. Confess Christ Fear God and others will learn to do the same. Of course, that's not always a pain-free process. Sin has consequences. We're going to cover more of that detail next week. But for now, learn that lesson. Learn the only valuable lesson, the only worthwhile thing Jonah has done so far. Fess up. The gospel is seen that it is in that even after all this, God is not done with Jonah. It is not too late for him And it's not too late for you. So get your identity straight. Remember who he is. Remember who you are and fess up and see what he does. For once, Jonah is worth imitating. Just look at verse 9. That's it. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, uh, I'm so thankful for this story. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful... Lord, that you do chase people down, Lord, that you don't let your children hide. They can't hide their identity. Lord, ultimately, you will force us and corner us into confessing who you are, who we are in you. Lord, great is your faithfulness. It's a fantastic story. We thank you that we have a better example than Jonah, ultimately. We thank you for Christ who went on a mission voluntarily. Not because he got dragged kicking and screaming. Lord, teach us to confess this week and going forward. Teach us to confess our faith, to freely confess our sins. And help us to grow in you 
We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Grace withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God.